rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Hello, and welcome to episode three of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your host, Charlie Neymar, and uh, before we get started, I just want to say happy Hanukkah to those who celebrate. Uh, I am recording this on the 3rd of December, which means that tonight would be the third night of Hanukkah, so happy Hanukkah to all of you. Um, I guess first off, we're going to start with the emails, and uh, the first one I got is from Trent Thornton who writes, uh, hello Charlie, listen to the first episode, good stuff. Personally, I tend to like a bit more story commentary. I'm not sure that there's much to say about this issue since it's in many ways a late Silver Age tale, backed up by an overly preachy Superboy story, so I can appreciate that your hands were tied. And he's talking about Action 393, and uh, yeah, there wasn't much to say about that one. Um, also, based on the description, I was expecting some really nasty audio problems, but except for one minor instance, the audio was fine. You'll only get better as you perfect your skills, but you're already in a pretty good place. And thank you, Trent. Um, I'm still working on the audio episode two, uh, which is out now. Uh, it was weird. I noticed that the audio quality kept changing, even though I'm recording all, I was recording all at one time. I don't know what that was about, but, um, hopefully this one will be even better. Uh, back and Trent also writes, uh, this is in no way a bash, but I think it might be helpful if you discuss a bit why you're doing this podcast. What attracts you to the Bronze Age apart from how awesome it is? I mean, how do you prefer or do you prefer this over the Burn Age? Mostly the reason I'm doing the Bronze Age. One, I really do like it. It is awesome. But the other reason is because there's already a podcast covering the post-crisis era. Uh, called From Crisis to Crisis, hosted by Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor. And um, I didn't see a reason to do another podcast on the same material. No one has the podcast covering just this era of Superman, so I thought I'd give it a shot. And um, I do have most of the issues from this era, and I'm still working on collecting some of the later issues. And I just, I do really enjoy this issue, is this era. And in some ways, I just like the, I guess you could call it the majesty of this age, because you have, I know a lot of people like, uh, prefer Superman to be the last Kryptonian, and I understand that. But I like that in this version, yes, some of the stuff is funny, but we do have Crypto and Supergirl and uh, Kandor for, for most of it. Uh, we have the Fortress of Solitude. We have Fan the Phantom Zone. Everything pe most people know about Superman, granted it wasn't introduced in this era, but it was built upon in this era, and that's, that's just some of the stuff I like. And um, a little towards the end, they start just kind of holding place till we get to the Burn Age, which is understandable, but that last story is going to be great, and I almost can't wait to get there. But that's pretty much why I'm doing this one. I just did want to step on anyone's toes uh, from crisis to crisis is a great show uh, it was the first one I ever listened to and I can't think of any way to really do it much better than that so I figured why try um, the last episode of from crisis to crisis actually did 
mention this show, and I thank you guys for that. And then uh, Trent continues, overall, I think you're in a good place to make an awesome podcast. You'll only get better over time. Congratulations on a great debut episode, Trent. Well, thank you, Trent. Um, I hope I'm getting better. Uh, like I said before, this is my first try, so hopefully I do get better with with age. I guess is the way to say it. I don't know. Next, I got uh, a note from Billy Hogan. Uh, Billy actually hosts the Superman Fan Podcast over at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com. And it's also a great show. He's got over, what is it, 150-some episodes, I think, now. And uh, he has also mentioned my show. Uh, he mentioned mentioned it once before I recorded anything, even, or even before the promo. And uh, his, his Keith Giffen episode did include both my promo and a mention of this show, plus Superman Forever. And um, I haven't listened to his new show as I'm... As I record this, his latest episode is the Stuart Inman. I don't know how to say his name. The episode spotlighting that particular artist. So um, Billy writes, Charlie, listen to your first episode at work last night. Your episode sounds better than my first one. While the backup story laid the message on too thick and was too heavy-handed, I did enjoy the first story. It reminded me a lot of the Superman stories I grew up on in the 60s. One of the things I liked about it was that Superman didn't rely on his abilities to overpower the bad guys, but had to outthink them. That always makes for a better Superman story. Or what really made the episode was sharing your comic book collecting story and how you became a Superman fan. I can't wait for next week's episode. Have a happy Thanksgiving with your family, Billy Hogan. Well, thank you, Billy. Um, yes, this was very Silver Agey. Um, all of these action comics issues um, starting off have been Silver Agey. The one this episode is Silver Agey. And I know after this we're coming up on an imaginary story, which is also very Silver Agey. So hopefully you'll enjoy these next few uh, the issues from the next few episodes. So thank you, Billy, for that. And uh, let's see, we have another one. This one's from Michael Bradley. Let's see, and he writes, An auspicious beginning to the podcast, sir. Good work. I look forward to working through the Bronze Age, as there are a number of these tales there that I've never read, and even more that have never been reprinted making tracking them down sometimes rather difficult, and boy, don't I know it. I'm looking forward to this, too, because there are several Bronze Age tales that I have yet to read, or have a chance to actually read through. I've looked at them, but I haven't had a chance to actually read them, so that also has me really excited about this. Um, back to the email. Is your focus just going to be on action comics, Superman, and World's Finest, or will you be looking at Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane titles, too? Um, I don't remember if I mentioned this in, in any previous episodes, but my current plan... And this could change, but my current plan is I'm covering action and world's finest. In fact, starting next episode uh, with the Julie Schwartz era, um, I will start covering Superman. So I'll have three issues a week to cover, which huh, hopefully I can do. Uh, no, I will. Just kidding with you. But um, I will not be covering the the other super books, quote unquote super books, uh, like Jimmy and Lois and. Adventure, which currently at this point in time has Supergirl, and when Supergirl gets her title, I won't be covering that, and I will not be covering Superboy or the Legion stuff. But I am trying to, um, at the end of each episode, trying to mention a little bit about each of those issues uh, when I do the uh, the Elsewhere in the Super Universe, I guess we could call it, um, section right at the end. So hopefully that answers. Oh, and I will be bringing, and once it, uh, we come up to it, DC Comics Presents. I'll also be covering that. And then I will cover the other books if they cross over with any of the, the main books that I'm covering. 
I do know later on down the road, the new adventures of Superboy does have a couple of crossovers with Superman or with action. So I will mention them there, but though only those issues I won't be covering in depth the other issues of those books. They are still good though, so I, I highly recommend reading them. If I had time, I would do a separate podcast for those. Maybe once I get the hang of this editing thing and it doesn't take me so long, I'll be able to do that. Uh, back to the email though. Sorry about the tangent. Um, I did want to note one thing. The iTunes feed. It only downloads one file per entry, which is the M4V file since it's the first in the list. I believe if you want to offer multiple file types, you need to have a separate entry for each file type. Um, thank you, Michael. Um, I'm still looking. I am trying to look into that. I have decided uh, this because I'm using a Blip TV, I, and I wanted to try to have a way so everyone could listen to the episode without having to download it. Unfortunately, uh, when I'm trying to do that, unfortunately with the iTunes link, like Michael mentioned, the video is the first one to download, and you don't. It's unless you specifically click the link for the audio, you don't get the audio. So. Um, I've decided to forego that there won't be a video or an embedded audio player because for some reason the embedded audio player won't work for me. Um, so what I'm going to do is just have a direct link to the audio and then the iTunes feed will only have the audio. So hopefully that'll help, that'll help solve that problem. Also, I did find out that I have been approved for the for iTunes. Uh, it's still going to be a, a week or two before uh, you can search for it. But apparently I am going to be um, a bit, this webcast will be available directly on iTunes. So that's pretty cool. Uh, anyway, Michael finishes. Uh, anyway, good luck on the show. I look forward to listening. Michael Bradley. And I want to thank you, Michael. Um, another fun email. I want to thank everyone that has sent me emails. Uh, it has been really cool. I am enjoying having the fan feedback. Um, I had, did find out, and I'm totally shocked. Um, the first episode has hit over a hundred downloads or views, and I, I know that's not a whole lot, but when you consider that, as far as I really know, the only people I actually sent anything about this web podcast to was like, maybe like 20, 30 people. Uh, the fact that I've got a hundred downloads is pretty freaking awesome. So I want to thank all of the listeners out there. I even found out that um, at least the blog, even if you're not listening to the show, my blog has been visited by people from not just the United States, but uh, England, uh, Germany, uh, Newfoundland, and all over the world, which, wow, it is a, <laughs> it's a pretty humbling thing when you realize that your voice is being heard all over the world when, I, when you do this. So I'm just shocked and amazed. So I want to thank everyone uh, who listens and downloads this show. I, I can't thank you enough for, uh, for listening to this, and I uh, hope I'm making it worth it for you. Well, uh, now that the emails are out of the way, uh, we'll get into the show. Uh, the first up, uh, we're going to cover World's Finest number 199, which was released on October 27, 1970. The cover price is 15 cents, which still makes me cry. Um, it has Neil Adams' art on the cover this time. And I gotta tell you, this cover looks awesome. We have uh, Batman holding up the finish line and saying, "Here they come!" And we have Flash and Superman coming in as fast as they can. Although I do notice that the Flash doesn't have the medallion he's actually supposed to have in the issue, which, uh, if you want to be nitpicky, is a problem. 
Um, then, of course, without showing you who won, at the bottom of the screen we have, or bottom of the cover, we have some kids. A few of them were looking sad because I can't believe it, my hero lost. And then we have a few kids looking really happy because, yay, my hero won. So that's a pretty cool cover. I do wish there was a little more background to it, but, um, or color, because it's supposed to be the sky, but it looks like they just colored it white. There's a lot of people you can see. I am a Neil Adams fan, and I think he does a great job with his art. And this is just another example of it. This looks really, really good. Anyway, uh, the story is called, uh, this issue is called Race to Save Time. The writer is Denny O'Neill. The penciler is Dick Dillon. The inker is Joe Gaella. And the editor is Julie Schwartz. Um, starting from last issue, if you'll recall, we have Superman and Flash racing across the galaxy, opposite the direction of some beings called Arachnids, which are actually causing time to mess up. Um, an example of this was the fact that a Roman centurion found himself in Metropolis. Uh, Superman did, ta uh, did pick him up, but ended up taking him with him up to, uh, out to Oa, uh, because the Owens, uh, the Guardians, contacted him because they needed his help to stop, uh, to prevent the end of time. Uh, Jimmy Olsen also fell back in time and is currently in Roman centurion times, or in Roman times, uh, about 2,000 years in the past, and currently is about to be put to death uh, for just showing up, I guess, witchcraft, and currently has five arrows heading straight for him. Uh, but, but fortunately, and the story picks up right at that spot, Jimmy actually fades out before the arrows reach him, which is very fortunate for him. Unfortunately, he travels, he only gets about 1400 years into the future and ends up in the Spanish Inquisition, which means he's in Spain and he's accused automatically of witchcraft, which also makes sense again because that's the kind of stuff that was going on. The thing that gets me is usually when you see stuff about time travel, usually they end up, uh, the characters will stay in the same place but will go through time. Jimmy has not only gone from Metropolis to Rome, but now he's in Spain. So that's kind of weird. Meanwhile, Superman and Flash are nearing the Andromeda Galaxy. The Guardians watching this mention that there has been another timeline shift, which of course explains how Jimmy just did a sudden fade and ended up in, the, in a little bit into the future. So uh, the story actually, the actual start to the story begins um, as Superman and Flash near, a near an orange sun, which, as you might imagine, um, is not yellow and it's not red, but it's obviously in between, which means Superman's powers are weakened. Uh, later on, I do know that there's a story that explains that his uh, powers are weakened by about half, and suddenly they're attacked by the Anachronids again, and in his weakened condition, Superman is knocked out, and they actually catch Superman's cape as the Flash tries to keep uh, fighting on. And then, unfortunately, his medallion gets caught, and the two of them get dragged away into the darkness. Back in the past, Jimmy realizes he needs to escape. So he uses his Superman wristwatch uh, to actually trick the guard so that he can body slam him and into the wall. And then Jimmy's able to escape, because I guess prisons weren't as good back then. Um, now, unfortunately, Jimmy tries to hide at an inn, which is currently occupied by about three or four other soldiers. So that's poor luck there. And 
Jimmy tries to run away, but ends up at the, what appears to be the quarters of a gentleman named Tomas de Torquemada, who is known as the cruelest inquisitor ever, and has Jimmy taken away for execution. Uh, meanwhile, back in the present, Superman and the Flash come to, they're tied up, and it appears that they're on the same planet as they were during the last issue, and the Donut Sun is once again in the sky, only this time it's red. And the captors actually reveal themselves, and like I said, mentioned last time, we kind of hinted at it, at least one of them should be familiar to you, um, if you've seen them in the issue. Uh, but the captors are revealed as Cruel, Jack Sir, General Zod, and Professor Vacox, all four of whom are, van are Phantom Zone criminals. Turn uh, they explain that the planet exists in a universe on the far edge of the Phantom Zone, and that they broke through and built the Arach Anachronids, which I have to ask, how? I'm looking at this planet. There does not appear to be any life on it, and it's all rock. And they don't have, well, they might have their powers some of the time, obviously, because we've seen the sun shift from yellow to red. So sometimes these Kryptonian criminals do have superpowers. But how did they take rock and not only build these incredible machines, but end up with a base and everything? Now, the only thing I can think of, which actually might fight, destroy my whole argument, but the only thing I can think of would be that while they have their superpowers, they might be able to mine for the materials they need and can use their powers to use those materials to build the stuff. But I don't know, I would think that'd be really long and tedious. I don't know. Well, it's hard to tell. I would imagine that if that's gonna that would have to be the explanation. Unfortunately, it is not explained in the issue. It's just kind of one of those things they glaze over. Or they gaze over, they glaze, they they you know, sw sweep under the rug. So I guess we're not supposed to think about that, but that was the first thing that popped in my mind. Anyway, um, these guys purposely use the anachronids to mess up the time stream to destroy the barrier between the Phantom Zone and Earth's solar system so that they could be free and rule. However, um, Flash does mention this to them that doing so would kill billions of people. Billion! And that's no good, but they... These guys don't seem to care because those billions of lives don't mean anything to them as long as they have power and all that stuff. So it just shows you how truly cruel these guys are. And so with the heroes tied up, they leave to finish their mission. Obviously, they need to escape. Uh, so Flash and Superman try to figure out a way out, try to uh, determine a way out. Unfortunately, Superman has, does not have his powers, and the bombs are just too strong for him to break through. Flash, without his medallion, is too tired to do his to do his vibration trick, so he can't get out of his. Meanwhile, back on Earth, we see some more time anomaly, anomalies. Uh, a trolley car, uh, offering rides for five cents, uh, appears in Metropolis, even though they were retired years ago. We see Bruce Wayne and, and his butler Alfred at a movie in Gotham City, but the movie, instead of showing a current Peter Fonda movie, we actually see an old movie starring Rudolph Valentino. We also see that Diana Prince, who owns a boutique, um, had placed miniskirts on display, but for some reason those miniskirts have been replaced with old-style dresses. And um, she doesn't understand why. I do want to note real quick though that this covers Metropolis, Gotham City, 
and wherever it is that Wonder Woman is at this time. These are three books that Denny O'Neill currently was currently writing at the time. Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Anyway, um, back on the alien world, um, Superman and Flash realized that the uh, green medallion is still nearby. So combining their willpower, they're actually able to pull the medallion to them. And Superman is able to get a hold of it. And using his willpower, he creates a saw to cut through the ropes. Unfortunately, before he can free the Flash, uh, General Zod returns. He uses a blaster to destroy the medallion. And in a two-page fight sequence, Superman and Zod, without their powers, fight and, are, and eventually Superman wins, but not, without, not before he twists his ankle. Unfortunately, during the fight, uh, the, uh, Zod's blaster fired and uh, Flash was caught by the edge of the ray blast, which actually ends up paralyzing him from the waist down. Of course, Superman's ankle hurts, so he can't walk. They spot General Zod's footprints on the ground, so they decide to follow it back to, their, to the bad guy base. And since neither one of them can walk or run, they crawl slowly. And I'm guessing it's slowly just because of the way it's drawn. Meanwhile, back in the past, Jimmy is being led to a chopping block. Uh, back in the present, um, the heroes finally reach the base and see Jack Sir and Professor Vacox playing six-layered chess. Now, it's called six-layered chess in the book. I always thought they called those levels, so like six-level chess or like 6D chess or something, but I don't know. I'm not a chess player, so I'm not sure about that. Uh, anyway, to distract them, Flash throws a rock over their heads uh, to make it sound like there's someone coming up behind them. And as they go to investigate, our heroes crawl as fast as they can and are able to trip over the enemies and knock them out with one punch. More on that later. Uh, with only 30 seconds left, the heroes crawl into the base as fast as they can. And finally, excruciatingly later, the Flash finally gets his hand on the Master Switch and not only deactivate is able to deactivate the anachronids, but he also wins the race and saves the universe. Yay! Uh, and, of course, back in the past, uh, we see Jimmy do another fade-out. And since we don't see him again, we are left to assume that he comes back to the future. And since even though we, I don't think we see him, we're also left to decide that the Roman centurion has indeed gone back to his time, his correct time. Oh, actually, we do see him. I'm sorry. So as Jimmy returns to the future and the Roman centurion returns to the past. However, back on the alien planet, Cruel returns to blast the heroes. For some reason, he doesn't realize that the sun is yellow again, so Superman is able to use it to just stand there and defect, deflect the blast from his ray gun, and then with one super punch, knocks out Cruel. And then to make sure that they can't recreate the anachronids, they, uh, he destroys all the machinery and flies the Flash back to Earth. Uh, basically, his plan is that he's, he's sucked up a bunch of air before they left the planet, and Superman is going to, I guess, give him mouth-to-mouth -to, -mouth to make sure Flash has enough air to get back to Earth. He also mentions that they're going to let the Guardians know what has happened and so that the Guardians can make sure that uh, the, the, um, the warp to that dimension is no longer open 
can conceal that area off forever so that the phantom zone people can, uh, so the phantom zoners cannot use that to uh, escape from the zone again. Now I do have a few notes about this issue. Um, first of all, there uh, there is a three-page recap at the beginning. Now you've got to remember that this is 1970. This is before a time before comic book stores. So kids, um, kids, grown-ups, whatever, uh, you had to buy these off the news racks. And if it just so happens that you missed the previous issue, and you picked this one up because maybe you're a Flash fan, or because you like te Superman teaming up with people, or just because it's got a really cool cover, um, you may not have picked up the f previous issue because, like they always say, every issue could be somebody's first. So. Uh, they do a nice three-page recap, and it pretty much brings you up to speed really well. And um, um, on page five, we see that the heroes are trying to spur themselves on to fight. Again, unfortunately, the, <laughs> the sad part about that is that uh, after they say, we have to, the universe is depending on us, they both get KO'd, KO'd and uh, dragged away. Um, on page ten, we see that uh, Flash explains that he's too tired. Now, I might be confused, but from what I, I took... That medallion he had on was supposed to sustain him. So, the way I took it was that at whatever level of of tiredness or whatever he was at when he started, he would stay at that the whole time. So therefore, theoretically, when you remove the medallion, he would still be at that, but then now he can get tired. Apparently, what actually has happened is that instead. Flash is getting tired, but the medallion is giving him the energy he needs to keep going. So now without the medallion, it's all kicking in. I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, I get it works for the story, but I'm not sure I agree with the way they explained that they, I guess they didn't keep it really clear. But I just don't think he should be tired there. But if he was, then Superman wouldn't have saved the day and all that stuff. Uh, page 11, uh, like I mentioned, um, we see cities or characters from the other O'Neill books of the time. Uh, he might have been re writing others. I don't remember. I, he might, I think he was also writing Justice League at this time. Of course, these guys are three members of the Justice League, so it works. But I do know that three of the uh, main hero books that he was writing were uh, he was just getting ready to start Superman. Batman he had already started and was working with Neil Adams and other, writer, and other artists. And Wonder Woman, he had just done. He had just. He was working on after they had take, done the takeaway of the, of her powers. So I thought that was pretty cool. And of course, we get another Batman cameo, which means that he still technically appears in every issue. He's been on every cover, like I mentioned. And uh, this time he's, of course, he's in his Bruce Wayne disguise, but still he's there. Uh, page nine, we see the blaster destroy the medallion that Flash was using. Now, if you ask me, and I granted I'm no perfect connoisseur of Green Lantern lore, but I would imagine that if you're uh that if you have these small weapons, that they would be a little stronger. To actually to paraphrase uh, Optimus Prime in the animated Transformers movie from the 80s, I thought they were made of sterner stuff. And the fact that a simple ray blast can destroy it to smithereens, no. But 
I can I can see though why they got rid of it because obviously it'd be a crutch. They're trying to give make it uh, seem like there's no way that our heroes can win, and even though Flash is too tired and Superman has no powers, that little medallion could give them um, ostensibly superpowers, make them make one of them a Green Lantern. So by destroying it, it makes it difficult for the heroes to just save themselves. But again, I that just seemed too easy. Now pages 10 through 18. Um, now I don't know if I mentioned this, and I probably didn't. But um, okay, so our villains had tied up the vil uh, our heroes and identified who they were so that the audience knows who they are, and then turned and left to go on their mission or to complete their mission. Professor Vacox specifically mentions that it will be seven hours before the sun uh, turns yellow again, which means that from the moment where Superman and Flash started trying to get out of their ropes to the point where Superman kept was fighting General Zod and then the heroes started crawling to the base and then crawl up the steps to take care of to stop all the machine all the anachronisms and everything that whole that whole bit took 7 hours now i i mean so you can understand why at the very end these guys are so tired. They spent at least, I'm guessing, at least six and a half hours literally crawling from one place to another. However, what I don't understand is why, without any visible form of you know, transportation, the bad guys would have tied them up there because they also had to walk all that distance and crawling I'm, I wouldn't imagine the crawling would be that much slower than walking that they would have actually you know be fine that especially since they followed Zod's trail all the way to the place that means Zod went all the way to the base and all the way back and then the heroes crawled all the way there in that same seven hours so the times a little wonky but, you know, whatever. I also noticed um, it took uh, two pages of fighting for Superman to knock Zod out. And he wasn't really tired at that point. But the two tired heroes who had just literally, like we had just mentioned, must have been crawling for about six and a half hours, was actually able to knock down and then punch out Daycox and Jack Sir with one punch. I don't know about that one. Page 20. Um, I do like this though. This is the uh, page 20 is where the heroes are crawling up the steps. Now they the way the art works here, it looks great. It really does capture the fact that they are straining. I cannot imagine trying to crawl up stairs knowing I only have 30 seconds. The pressure on them must have been like would have been fantastic. You know your arms are hurting, the shoulders are hurting, the back is probably hurting. You're dragging dead weight because your legs aren't working. Although Superman did have one good leg, so he could kind of help. But Superman didn't have his powers, but had still had a good leg to help him move. Flash has his powers, but his legs don't work. So tech, I'm not sure how evenly matched that makes it so that this is a fair win. But I'm not going to argue against it, because for one thing, this, would, this really is the only thing Flash has. Flash's power is to go fast. He's supposed to be the fastest man alive. 
if he loses a race to Superman, he can't claim that anymore. So I will give the Flash that. That also would technically mean that the Flash should be able to uh, pass through time. And I haven't read enough of the Bronze Age Flash to know if he does that too much. I do know he has the Cosmic Treadmill to do that. So, uh, well, I don't know. There is some inconsistencies, inconsistencies between stories as far as speed, which we'll get to later. Um, also, on page 22, now I have read several stories where, and this is both pre-crisis and post-crisis, where Superman has lost his powers, and that whenever he gets to the point where his powers return, he feels it. He can feel the rush of the power come into him. He feels himself get stronger. He feels, you know, he can feel it. He can feel the, uh, gravity having less of a, of a hindrance on him and all that stuff. So it kind of throws me off that Cruel, who I would imagine since they've spent all this time on this sun, on this planet where the sun keeps shifting from red to yellow, would really, would probably even know about it more than Superman would at this point, understand the feeling that you get when the sun turns yellow again. I don't understand how he didn't feel it. Otherwise, Cruel would have tried to like blast him with heat vision or something instead of the, you know, this crappy little gun. But he uses the gun and it gives Superman a chance to show off his powers again and knock him out. And like I said earlier, with the uh, fact that he's got to use air, uh, he's got lots and lots of uh, mouth to mouth that's going to be needed for that trip home. So I hope Iris and Lois don't get jealous over all the lip locking they're going to have to do. Um, and then, of course, my last note for that issue one, at the, on the final panel, they are talking while flying through space. So, first, how are they doing that when there's no air? That's number one. Number two, remember last issue when I was, when I made a big deal about the fact that this Roman centurion's armor somehow protected him from the rigors of traveling through space um, when Superman took him from Earth to Oa? Do you also remember how they made a big deal about the fact that Flash would need to have the medallion in order to be protected by the rigors of space? And that the only reason Superman needed to protect Flash in... Uh, when they started heading towards the sun was because the sun was yellow. The Flash does not have the medallion in this instant at the end of the issue. It is gone, trashed, battered in a million pieces. Superman does not have him wrapped up in his super cape, his indestructible cape, which means that apparently the costume that the Flash has made for himself also does protect him from the rigors of space, which means that the medallion did not really serve that purpose like the Guardian said. Uh, either that or really what we're not seeing since it zoomed out so much is that, you know, Flash is decompressing and his eyes are bugging out of his head and he's about to explode, but hopefully Superman's super speed can get him to Earth before he don't. He just makes a big red stain on his super suit. But it's okay because it's the end of the Silver Age and that's what that's the kind of stuff. I mean, hey, Superman 4, uh, there was a woman floating around in space and she didn't die. What can I say? Of course, it's Superman 4, so take that as you will. Uh, the final page. Um, now, I say it's one of the final pages. It's not. There's a, there is a letters page. Um, again, they cover previous issues. Looks like uh, the issue 195, written by Bob Haney, with art by Andrew and Esposito. But there is a full-page ad drawn 
apparently looks like it's by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson, uh, promoting the next issue of World's Finest, which will team Superman up with Robin, the boy wonder, in their first adventure together without Batman. I will be interested to see if Batman shows up for a cameo, but I would imagine he would with Robin being there, but who knows. And then we also have a blurb at the bottom about future issues of World's Finest. We'll actually show, uh, showcase Superman teaming up with Green Lantern, Aquaman, and Wonder Woman in her non-powered garb. So that's it for World's Finest. Right now what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a little bit of a break, get, some, get a drink of water, and um, I've got some promos for you. And then um, we'll come back. December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different, a date which will live in infamy, a world at war, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. The Tales of the Justice Society of America, every Friday at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Hi, my name is Billy Hogan, host of the Superman Fan Podcast, which explores the world of Superman and the many creators who have added to his legacy over the decades. Episodes will feature creator biographies or highlight some of their top stories they have created as well as their top characters. Other episodes will feature topics appropriate to the holiday or the time of the year. For instance, Valentine's Day will feature stories about the women in Superman's life. April Fool's Day will feature some of the bizarre Superman Silver Age stories or some of the imaginary stories that have been published. Halloween will feature some of the scary Superman stories or some of his strange transformations and, of course, some of the Christmas Superman stories. The website can be found at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com. The blog is supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. And you can send email to supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. I also have a spoiler-free comic book review blog of the titles I read every week, which can be found at my pull list 
www.blogspot.com and you can send email about this blog to mypolllist at gmail.com. He was a hero to some, a villain to others, and wherever he rode, people spoke his name in whispers. He had no friends, this Jonah Hex, but he did have two companions. One was death itself, the other, the acrid smell of gun smoke. Death and the Acrid Smell of Gunsmoke, the Jonah Hex Podcast. Available Thursdays at two true freaks.libson.com. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com Okay, and we're back. Uh, just in time for Action Comics 395. And now this one is also 15 cents. The cover on this one is drawn by Kurt Swan and Dick Giordano. Um, and it, it depicts a girl in a, in a kind of almost <laughs> uh, centurion-type armor lifting a rock with Superman flying towards her from the back. And it says on the rock, a girl mightier than Superman. And I'm going to tell you right now, this little plot point has nothing to do with the story. And I'll explain that once I finish with the uh, synopsis here. In any event, the first story is called The Secrets of Superman's Fortress. The writer is Leo Dorfman. The penciler is Kurt Swan. The inker is Murphy Anderson. And it is edited by Murray Boltonoff. And uh, the first few pages, we actually see the secret origin, I guess you could call it, of the Fortress of Solitude. We see Superman using his super fists to carve the fortress out of the rock, well, out of the mountain. In the next panel, we actually see him flying all of the weapons and trophies and uh, mementos that he's collected over during his career up to that point, uh, flying it out to the fortress. The next panel, we actually see him uh, talking about the secret door, the special door that he's got. The, that's the big gold door that's just sitting there inside of a mountain. Um, and he's turning the key. So I guess at this point, we also know that the key has been created. And as everyone knows, that's the super key that opens the door. And it also sets out uh, quite a bit away from the fortress and points, I believe, directly north and can be viewed as an airline mark, as an airplane marker. And then uh, the next couple panels, we see Jimmy bringing, uh, we see Superman bringing Jimmy in as the first visitor to the fortress. And then the next page, we're on, we're on page two, 
and three. It's a double page spread showing a cut view of the Fortress of Solitude. It's uh, apparently it's the first version obviously seen in the 70s and it's the quote-unquote modern version of the Fortress and we see things like uh, where, super, where they keep the Superman and Supergirl robots and the Supergirl robots are already updated to the current version of the costume at this point which is the one with the knee-high red boots and the long red gloves that go halfway up her arm and the short little skirt dress thing going on. So we've got that. We've got the, uh, the his interplanetary zoo. We see um, the, the weapons armory and the super lab workshop and the supercomputer. Notice all the super. Uh, his space communications room, uh, the super archives, his trophy room, the Krypton Memorial, which has the infamous statue of Jor-El and Lara holding up the planet Krypton, the kryptonite storage room, and it's actually noted, because we wouldn't know that, I guess, that these samples are under lead glass for experimental purposes only. And I'd like to point out, he's got, uh, it looks, appears nine different pieces of kryptonite, and uh, I see one or two that look like they might be the green kryptonite, one that looks like colored kind of blue, and then six others that are purple. Anyway, there's a door that leads to the Supergirl wing, so we don't actually get to see Supergirl's part of this, just the Superman section. Uh, we see where he hangs up the key when he comes into the building. Um, we see the, where he keeps the bottle of Candor. We see where he has the secret identity vaults, and it's really cool because it's actually labeled secret identity vaults. So, you know, if you can find a way in there, and um, he's got, uh, at least at some point, he has a room set up where he's got uh, a Perry White room, a Jimmy Olsen room, a Lois Lane room, probably has a Lana Lang room. And I know he came up with a Clark Kent room so that if someone breaks, somehow breaks in to the Fortress of Solitude due to a, f a fissure being created by an earthquake or something, they will see that and not be and not automatically figure out, hey, Superman's Clark Kent. But this one actually has secret identity vaults. I don't know. I'm thinking that means that's where all his Clark Kent's, where he keeps a bunch of Clark Kent stuff. So, uh, yeah. Could be, uh, that's probably not good. That's probably why he redesigns it later on. Uh, then, of course, uh, again, like I mentioned, the trophy room and the memorial, and then he's got the friendship galleries, like I just said, which has Jimmy, Lois, Perry, Lana, and Clark. So, he's got a secret identity vault, and the friendship galleries. Granted, it's a vault. It does have a door. It looks like a a vault door. I can even see the tumbler on it. So that's pretty cool. And I will be including that on um, the post I do for this episode. You will see the image that I'm looking at right now, uh, Secrets of Superman's Fortress, the Fortress of Solitude cutout. Drawn by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson, it looks really cool. And again, while everyone might not like him, and while he doesn't go, I don't think he goes quite to the level of detail as people like George Perez, or John Byrne if he really wants to, or Phil Jimenez. Kurt Swan does pretty good with details, and I mean there's quite a bit of detail drawn in on here, so this is pretty cool. And then shortly later, of course, he takes Lois uh, for her first trip, and she and he shows her around and shows her the Lois Lane room, and she just loves it. Uh, she does act about act. She does ask about a door that's marked "Visitors Prohibited," though, and 
he says, uh, you have, you have, basically he tells her, you asked too many questions, I'm going to take you home now because you screwed up. So we, after he drops her off in Metropolis, he flies back to the fortress, and he actually enters the room looking all solemn, and he says that he will never forget Althera. So then he goes over and has these memory tapes, and he puts on a helmet and plays the memory tape, which he swore he would never do again, but he's got, he just has to one more time. Um, and plays the memory tape and closes his eyes and basically what happens is this memory tape replays in his head so he gets to relive uh, this encounter he had with Althera. So anyway, the story, that, so this is basically where the main, story, main part of the story takes place. So we have Superman flying back to Earth from a mission in deep space and somehow because I guess he just looks around with his telescopic vision at once every once in a while, he spots a uh, spacecraft wreckage on a jungle planet, a remote jungle planet, sorry. Um, and he, so he goes down to investigate the spacecraft, and suddenly he hears the hunting cries of some kind of jungle beast. And turning around to investigate, he sees his primitive tribe of people actually run up to it and start praying to the sky god. And the spacecraft is, their, is the space chariot that brought forth their ancestors. So Superman figures out that these guys must be descendants of the original crew of that craft. And they start praying to the ship to be saved from being rounded up to the slave pens. Superman, of course, has come into a story without subtitles, but um, he decides to help these people. So he, in, a, in a nearby mountain, he actually digs in a cave and tells everyone to hide in there. Then he runs out and just standing there lets all these jungle beasts attack him. Of course, they're trying to gnaw on him. He's invulnerable, so they're not doing any damage. And while they're doing that, he takes some vines off of a nearby tree and fashions a net out of them and then captures all these jungle beasts in there and then flies them off to a distant mesa. Meanwhile, Captain Althera, you remember her, and her, little, and her soldiers, all of whom are women, um, she starts to admire him from a distance, and she decides she wants to capture Superman for later examination, and needs to capture some of those people so that they have slaves to mine the ergonite, or er, ergonite uh, that is used to that they use for energy on their home planet. Which I almost wonder if the people that developed the uh, Transformers kind of maybe read this issue or thought about this issue because. Boy, that sounds like something that Transformers, except if you just switch Aragonite with Energon, it's Transformers right there. Anyway, so after he's dropped them off, Superman starts flying back, and his telescopic vision he picks up Althera and company as they start to discuss their plans, but they go to enter the ship, and, and uh, as they're entering the ship, Superman actually refers to her as a beautiful goddess with a melodious voice. Unfortunately... The lead shielding of the ship blocks his super hearing so he can't hear what their plans are. Don't worry, I picked up on that too, and uh, I'll, I'll discuss that a little more later. I have a bit of a rant. Um, and then Superman flies back to the primitives and promises, promises them that he will do everything he can to protect them um, from being slaves. So, now that they've got protection, these, uh, these primitives decide to climb a nearby rang tree to, get, uh, to pick some of the fruit off of it for their midday meal. While they're doing that, Althera and her friends show up, and she fires a biomagnetic ray at the tree, 
causing it to be temporary, causing all of them to be temporarily stuck to it, like a magnet, hence biomagnetic. Before the women can capture them, though, Superman just flies in, uproots the tree, and flies it away. Althea stands there and actually admires Superman, but her sec uh, who I, I'm guessing is her second-in-command because she keeps talking to her like this, reminds her that the laws forbid male admiration. Apparently, they're only supposed to be servants or slaves only. Um, that night, Superman stalks, I mean spies on, Althea as she uses a light ray gun of hers to actually carve an image of Superman into the rock. And by the way, this is a spit-on spit on image. I don't know how good she is at this. But she does a really good job of recreating a Kurt Swan version of, of Superman in that rock. I have to admit, she does a really good job of that. Then she starts actually hitting it, saying, I hate you, hate you. And then she starts crying. And Superman uh, uh, seems to think that this reaction means that she actually likes him a lot, but hates herself for it. Because I, I don't know if he knows about, I don't know if he heard, he probably, using his superhero, the way he's been spying, or quote-unquote stalking, um, I would imagine he had heard at some point the whole, men are supposed to be slaves. But unfortunately, he's, well, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, he actually reveals that he could go for, he goes for her too. Oh. So, as she leaves the area that she was just in, uh, she accidentally activates a trap, and a large rock is about to crush her. Now, this part actually picks up the scene from the cover. Remember how I mentioned girls stronger than Superman? Mm -hmm. So, she catches it, but in just a couple minutes, it's becoming too heavy, and she's about to uh, say she can't hold it any longer, and about to buckle under. Superman lands, takes the rock, and flings it away. Now remember, the cover says it's a girl that might be mightier than Superman, and she's holding up the rock triumphantly. And in the story with that same scene, she can't hold the rock, and Superman literally takes the rock out of her hand and throws it away. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Althea believes that it means he's one of their people, a Verander, Verandar. And uh, she decides that since he's a Verandar, he will be her mate in one of those kind of Maxima type ways. She says that she can't, that, or he actually says that he can't resist and has found that she is the one woman fit for Superman, which just makes me say, poor Lois. Um, they kiss right then and she becomes dizzy. <laughs> they must have been reading this when they came up with the kiss at the end of Superman 2. Uh, but anyway, uh, when she, while she's dizzy, she ends up knocking her helmet off and reveals that instead of hair, she actually has feathers on the top of her head. So this causes Superman to reveal that, um, yeah, he doesn't have feathers. He has hair because he's from Krypton. He's not a Verandar. So because of this, she says that uh, because they're now, that means they're two different species, they can't be together. So after that, Superman um, mines enough ergonite for them to actually leave the planet uh, forever. And after a tearful goodbye, Superman sees one of Althera's feathers floating down to the ground. And then we, in the last panel, we see that feather is part of the um, monument he's got in the Forbidden Room of her. And that's the end of that story. Um, now, like I just said, my first note is, of course, um, 
the fake advertising on the cover because of the fact that the girl isn't mightier than Superman at all. Uh, pages two and three, we get that cool cutaway view of the fortress, and it's awesome. And like I said, it will be posted with the episode on the blog spot on Superman and Bronze blogspot.com. Uh, pages six and seven, I've got a, I have to, I had to wonder though, why does Superman go through all the hassle of messing with those animals, and while taking the time to, you know, pull down the vines and create a net to carry them, when he's got this really cool elastic, um, super indestructible cape that he wears on his back. He could literally just, you know, use that to cover him up and it'd be quicker. But, you know, whatever. Um, maybe it's more humane with a net that they can reach through. Uh, page 8. Um, okay, now this is what I was going to tell you about. Since when does lead block his super hearing? I know it blocks, you know, x-ray vision. That makes sense. Uh, heat vision could be blocked back when he used his x-rays for the heat, but I think that was that's considered still a golden age thing. Uh, x-ray, or heat vision is now a separate power at this point in time. And I know heat vision, he can still melt lead with his heat vision. Um, now telescopic would probably be blocked by the lead, I can understand that. But the hearing, I'm guessing someone got confused and uh, there must have been some kind of sound buffler, uh, baffler, like uh, it's re later revealed that Lex Luthor used to use on the uh, Lex Square Tower building post-crisis. But lead blocking super hearing, that makes absolutely no sense. Granted, I'm not saying it makes much sense for anyone to have super hearing, but for lead to block it, no. Um, okay, so then page 10 and 11. Um, like I said, he was stalking, basically like Superman Returns. He's hiding in a tree. She shows up and he just watches her. He's hiding in a tree, people. A tree. That's all I'm going to say. And I'm sorry if I seem kind of negative on these. This would be a lot funnier if it wasn't sad. Um, I'm not trying to be negative. These are fun stories. It's still a fun story if you kind of can look past all this. But, you know, these reviews you got... You, uh, these, with these reviews it's your opportunity to be nitpicky and when I notice these things I just have to mention them um, but I, I still like these stories um, similar to um, if you ever watched uh, Tales of the or watched if you ever listened to Tales of the JSA uh, Michael Bailey and Scott Gardner uh, always, are always making fun of the issues that they're talking about but they love these stories so you know it's a similar thing I, I do get nitpicky and I mention these things but, you know, if you can look past them, this is really a fun story. But anyway, and it's not my favorite, but it's still pretty good there. And um, also, like I also mentioned, um, also on page 12, Superman mentions that he's finally found a woman fit for a Superman. So that means that all this time with Lois was just until something better came along. Because he's been basically trying to court Lois since 1938. In one identity or another, and granted, you just we're just getting out of the 50s and 60s where she was just spending all her time trying to trick him into marrying her and stuff, but still, that just doesn't seem right. I mean, the guy was willing to marry Lori Lamaris um, before he found out she was a, you know, a mermaid. But he was willing to marry her. Of course, she was younger, so maybe that's part of it. But um, 
I just, I, I find that, I don't like it when they try to do that. They, we know, of course, granted, hindsight's twenty twenty. we know that Superman is meant to be with Lois. The whole point of the whole story, since Action Comics number one, has been the triangle between Lois and Superman and Clark Kent. Clark wants her to love, to like her, to like him as Clark. She likes Superman. And at this point, now, they're getting close enough where Superman actually can take her on dates. So that kind of got messed up. But that's basically the triangle that they've had since the beginning till, till the early 90s where revealed his secret identity to her. So it just doesn't make sense that suddenly he's just like, this is the woman for me. It's like trying to put more tragedy in his life, and it just, Superman doesn't need more tragedy. This guy's lost two sets of parents by this point, in tragic ways. One, his, parent, his planet blew up, and in, on the other instance, they died of a disease that partially was kind of his fault because he took them to the past where they were exposed to this disease, and he could not save them. So he already feels responsible for that. You know, he doesn't get to hang out with his dog that much anymore. So now he's, and, and, and he can't, t if, if he has problems in his, with his secret identity and stuff, he can't vent to anybody. He might be able to vent to Batman, but he doesn't even get to hang out with Batman too much anymore because he's hanging out with all these other heroes. Flash for the last couple of months. So I feel, I mean, I don't know why they're doing that, but that's just, so I don't know, I have to nitpick with that. Um... And also, it makes it seem like later on, when he does end up with, uh, when we do figure out that he wants to be with Lois, it's like he's settling. It doesn't seem like, I mean, you know, he's settling because he can't get Althera. So he just wants, I don't know. Now, that brings us to the end of the story. Now, overall, I just don't understand why it's, for, why it's a forbidden room. It makes no sense to me, just because of the fact that, I mean, it's forbidden, but so no one can know about this story with Althera. Why? It just doesn't seem right. But I don't know what's going through his super Kryptonian mind, but it just doesn't seem quite right that he would be would forbid anyone to go in there. So he can't tell anyone about a lost love he once had. It's like trying to keep a secret ex-girlfriend away from everybody. And he only takes like five people there ever. So I don't see what the big deal is, but... Whatever. I do know that that room is still. Um, I do know that when we get to Action 500, that it's, there's still a, a uh, sealed off room then that has no admittance and stuff. So I'm guessing this is still the same room. So this is something that sticks around. Still doesn't make sense to me, but I don't know. I'm I'm also looking at this from 19 or <laughs> from 2010. So maybe that has something to do with it. I'm not sure. Okay, now there's a backup story, an eight-page backup story, titled The Credit Card of Catastrophe. The writer on this one was Jeff Brown, the penciler was still Kurt Swan, the inker was still Murphy Anderson, and the editor was still Mary Boltonoff. Now, on this story, uh, we're, at a, uh, we're at a charity event, and Superman uh, is attending, and he visits Madame Mephisto. Before he leaves the fortune teller tent, she gives him a card and tells him that it will grant three wishes. So next day, uh, while covering a baseball game, because Superman, you know, Clark's on the sports desk, Clark sees that the stands on the other side of the stadium um, are starting to collapse. The, me the metal pole looks like it's buckling. 
So he changes to Superman, but when he goes to fly, he falls because his powers aren't working. So at that point, he's like, I don't know why this is happening, but I wish I had my power so I could help him. And suddenly, his, his powers come back, and he flies up, repairs his stands with his heat vision, and then changes back to Clark before he realizes his power is gone again. So when he realizes that he wished for his powers to return, he pulls out that card, and uh, the little spot on there for wish number one is glowing. The next day, covering uh, he's covering the filming of a World War One epic, um, and there's a hot air balloon that's on fire as part of the one of the stunts it looks like, and the wind blows the balloon at Clark, or actually at the film crew and Clark. Uh, so Clark wants to change into Superman, but for some reason he has no super speed. Fortunately, the smoke from the balloon has him blanketed, so he's still able to switch and hide his Clark clothes, and he wishes his powers were back at that point. And then, of course, he's able to fly the balloon away from the crew, and at some point he's able to use his super speed before his powers run out again to switch back to Clark and uses a piece a broke a ripped off piece of the balloon to actually float down to safety so that he doesn't have to come up with an excuse for that. And of course when he looks at the card, wish number two is now glowing as well. The next day, on a Metropolis ferry, the boat, not a person, uh he hears a distress call um, about icebergs crushing an oil drilling platform near Alaska. Uh, now, I don't know how he would have heard that without his super hearing, but more on that in a minute. Um, so he switches to Superman, tries to take off, and even though one panel shows that he actually makes, like maybe almost, like he actually jumps and maybe gets a little higher than the boat, he ends up falling into the water. And uh, while he's down there, he actually, you know, thinks about it and wishes that he could get to the drilling rig and suddenly at super speed he's flying cross-country to Alaska and starts crushing or knocking away the icebergs and and he crushes the icebergs and then looks like he gets in a helicopter and is coptered back to Metropolis and now his powers are completely gone and of course we don't see the card but I'm guessing wish number three is probably glowing right now so he goes back to where the fortune teller was, or tracks her down, asks, to, you know, tries to find out what the heck she did to him. She offers to return his powers to him if he'll do something for her. And at first, he doesn't want to do that because if he promises, Superman doesn't lie, so he'd be held to his bargain. On the other hand, if he doesn't have his powers back, who's going who's gonna to be there to save the world? You know, besides Batman. Green Lantern, Aquaman, Flash, Wonder Woman, even though she doesn't have powers at that point, uh, Supergirl, apparently they don't count. So he says he'll do it. And so she taps on the crystal ball, and he has his powers back, apparently. And she asks him for half of the gold at Fort Knox. So he says, okay, I'll do it. And he flies off and comes back with a big trailer carrying what looks to be tons of gold bars and then she says okay now let me have it so he says alright and he tips the thing over dropping all of the gold bars onto Madame Mephisto he digs her out laughing and, tur and turns out and pulls off her mask that apparently she was wearing and she is Supergirl 
Um, and she explains what was what the whole point of this was. Apparently, as Linda Danvers, she was at a lecture at while she was at Stanhope University because currently her character is at Stanhope University going to college. And at that lecture, they um, the man giving the lecture stated that anyone will commit crimes under hypnosis. So she decided to that she wanted to experiment to see if something like that would happen to Superman or herself. You know, since they're Kryptonian and their minds work a little bit differently. So she disguised herself as Madame Mephisto and knew about Superman being at this event. So when he came into the tent to visit, to uh, see her, she used the crystal ball to hypnotize Superman and uh, into thinking his powers were gone, you know, except when wishing, and that after the wish was taken care of, that the powers would disappear again. And then, of course, she would follow him around to make sure, you know, just to make, just in case, so that if something bad happened and he didn't get the wish out in time, she could save the day. And she also made the card glow using heat vision, at, you know, because she was following him around. Although, I would have to say that if you're using heat vision on a card, credit card, or what have you, it's going to burn a hole in it. But that never happens, so I don't know how that worked. But, whatever. Maybe they made them different in the 70s. Anyway, um, so... Then we, then she asks Superman how he saw through her disguise. So he explains that he wondered why Madame Mephisto um, used the wand. No. So he explains that what first gave him away, gave her away was the magic wand. Why didn't she just use that to get half the gold from Fort Knox instead of doing all this elaborate stuff of getting Superman's powers to go away and then offering to return them if he would do it? Since, you know, if she has the power to take away his power, she should have the power to get half the gold at Fort Knox. So as he's flying away, he got to thinking and realized that he still had his invulnerability during all those power losses. Uh, for example, he didn't get hurt when he fell. Uh, when the balloon came after him, uh, he got apparently he got hit by fire from the balloon, and it didn't burn him. And uh, when he ended up falling into the water, he didn't drown even though he didn't seem to be in the water long enough to drown. But uh, anyway, so he goes off and uses his x-ray vision to look at Madame Mephisto and sees that it's Supergirl under the mask. So as they're flying away at the end, and they're taking all the gold back to Fort Knox, uh, he asks her what the final result was, and she explains that unfortunately, since he was able to quote-unquote see through her disguise, the experiment ended early, so now we'll never know. The end. Okay. Like I said, this isn't one of my best. I don't have that many notes on it because it's only eight pages, but still. Uh, number one. First note, page one. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I, if I saw Superman, the Superman, at some kind of event, which looks to be some kind of uh, fair or carnival, if I see Superman there going into a tent, I would imagine that I would probably go check out what he's doing. Not only would I do that, I can imagine that there'd be a crowd following him everywhere he goes at that place because, especially in a Superman comic, he is the world's greatest hero and is probably the most well-known hero on Earth. So the fact that there's no one else with him in the tent is kind of weird. Page two. Um, I, did I wanted to point out that, okay, he says the only power he actually had was his invulnerability. But when he was changing to Superman to save the falling 
stands. The art depicts that he changed into into Superman at super speed. So that's another power he had during that point. Number th on page three. Now I also now uh, my question is we actually see on page two that the beam the uh, the metal I'm guessing iron beam is buckling under the massive weight of all the people in the overcrowded stands which makes sense but apparently what we see is Superman straightens, straightens it out and hits it with some heat vision how does that repair a beam that is buckling because of the weight I would imagine that he'd also have to he'd also have to get a lot of the people off of those stands I don't know how that's supposed to you know fix it you know, it would need, it, obviously, if it's buckling, it's going to need more support. But, I don't know, maybe maybe Kurt Swan drew it wrong. I'm not sure, but he just blasted it with heat vision, and apparently that makes it stronger. Uh, also on page three, the way it's depicted, it looks like he still has his super speed when he switches back to Clark, even though he actually says, as he's changing, uh-oh, my powers are gone again. And then on the bottom of page three, when he's covering the uh, movie filming, why is it, I wonder, that he's covering this film by standing on a chimney? He doesn't have a camera, so he's not trying to get a good shot. He's just covering the... And he's not a news guy yet, or a TV guy yet, because that doesn't happen until next month. So right now he's just a regular newspaper reporter. There is no one around to ask questions, but he's standing on top of a chimney on a building. The crew is down on the ground. So I'm wondering why he's on this chimney. It makes no sense. Page four. He's going to change into Superman to save everyone from the balloon. But for some reason he forgets that he's lost his powers. So that means at no time between this being, uh, saving the baseball field, or the people at the baseball field, and covering this uh, movie thing, there was no crime. Superman didn't go on any patrols. Or if, he, or if he didn't go on patrols, he forgot why he didn't go on patrol. Uh, he, so he didn't do any patrolling. He didn't, you know, he never, there was no crime to stop. So it was a really good time to be in Metropolis at this point, you know, as a visitor. Um, then page five. Now, it says that he's on a Metropolis ferry. Now, I've been on a, on a couple of boats. I've been on ferries. I know that there's a Staten Island Ferry in New York, which... Again, you know, during these times, I believe Metropolis was kind of modeled on New York, but the Staten Island Ferry, now correct me if I'm wrong, if I have any new listeners in New York that actually have been on the Staten Island Ferry and have seen it differently, please tell me. But anytime I've ever seen the Staten Island Ferry on TV or in movies, the thing's packed. It's crowded. There's lots of people on it because, you know, it's a ferry. Um, I've seen ferries in other cities that are usually packed. Now on this, granted it works since he supposedly doesn't quote unquote have any powers, so he wouldn't technically have the super speed. He, Clark appears to be the only person on this ferry. So he's able to change to Superman real quick. Second, now I have to look at this again. I don't remember if it comes out of a speaker. Okay, it's not coming out of a speaker. This indicates that Somehow Superman is, uh, Clark is hearing the radio. Oh, if actually it says, that radio in the pilot house is paging me. 
If he doesn't have his powers, how is he hearing it from the bottom floor of this ferry? Again, an, another screw-up. Because if he can hear it, he must have his super, his super hearing. So, again, his, super, his powers aren't gone. Second, like I mentioned before, Superman leaps the takeoff. It actually looks like he's going to make it. He's left, he's off the building, he's going pretty much straight up, and he's already as high as the as the uh, top as the roof of the top floor of the ferry. Then he crashes into the water. So besides invulnerability, he had his other powers working. He just wasn't putting two and two together. On uh, also on page five, now the radio said that icebergs are crushing the oil drilling platform. Now I'm looking at this picture. I see a helicopter on the platform and I see the platform. It looks like it's pretty far in the distance. I see this iceberg. It is pretty not far in the distance. It's pretty close to us. Superman's smashing it. There's still some, looks like, unless the perspective is weird, and I know icebergs, they have more under the ground, that, or under the water than above. And maybe it's crushing it down there, but the, there does not appear to be any damage to the oil, uh, to the oil rig, and the iceberg is way far away. That's all I'm going to say about that. So even though the art looks nice, it looks like there was some miscommunication on that. Um, and also on page five, now it really now it looks like, based on the fact that you see the helicopter on the oil rig, it looks to me like Superman has actually got the helicopter pilot to take him back to Metropolis. I was not aware that helicopters can fly cross-country. I know planes can, and they need a lot of fuel to do so. But helicopters are more for the short distance stuff flying around town they don't have much speed you know so even if they did this would take hours I would imagine to fly from Alaska to Metropolis which traditionally is on the East Coast but apparently somehow this happened and now on the plus side the shot where they where they, we actually see this I do like this shot the art on this little image this um, panel is cool. Granted, this the word balloons kind of hide most of it, but we're at a not a top down, but an angle of a top down, looking into the helicopter window. We see the pilot. We see some of his um, instrumentation panels. There's instrument panels and the controls, and of course we can see Superman. But also through the window, we can see the water down below. And we see what looks to be the statue. Oh no, wait. Huh. I thought it was a statue, but it's actually the oil field, the oil rig. So this is the helicopter because it's not there anymore. So this is the oil rig. He's taking a helicopter back to Metropolis, which to my recollection you can't do because it's across the country. So when it says in the next panel that it's days later before he's able to trace down the um, Madame Mephisto, that's probably because that's how long it took to get back to Metropolis. Just call me negative, Charlie. Um, page 8. Now this was also this was kind of cool. Superman is re, is, is thinking back um, over the fact that you know is remembering the fact that he had his invulnerability, even though he's forgetting the other powers he still had too. But he's remembering his invulnerability while he's flying. He's got a little bit of a smirk when he's remembering this stuff. He's got a cocky smile as he's like, "Huh, I get it," you know, as he's realizing what's going on. So that's kind of a cool. I like that panel. Um, again, it's the little details Kurt Swan was able to do pretty good with the little details. 
Some of the big details in this story, he kind of looks like he effed up. But the little details, he does really well with. So, overall, I do have to say, this is super Silver Agey. And this whole story was because Supergirl was trying to perform an experiment. I'm sorry. No offense to Billy Hogan and anyone else that likes the Silver Age kind of stories. But this kind of story is not for me. I just don't think it's one of the more, uh, one of the stronger Superman stories I've ever read. In fact, with all the inconsistencies and mistakes, I'd say it's probably one of the worst ones. And uh, there's going to be some that seem worse. The only thing that saves this, even though there are discrepancies, such as the fact that obviously these powers are there and that he's not supposed to be exhibiting and all this stuff, I do have to you know note the art in this still looks good. I mean, again, granted, he's drawing super speed when he's not supposed to have super speed. He, uh, there's, you know, all kinds of stuff that is wrong, but it still looks good. So, there is that for the, going for the story. Um, and also, with this being an experiment, she's taking a pretty big chance, I think. Because if you look at this, you have to, he can only use his powers, what, once a day? Or he only used them once a day. He could have used it all at once. But she's taking a really big chance that that nothing really bad is going to happen. Granted, she's following along behind him. But uh, it just it doesn't work. I think she's taking too big of a chance with the fact that something could have happened to him. Or these people that he was supposed to be saving. So, yeah, he's, she's taking a big risk on this. But, um... Well, that's it. That's episode four. I hope you all liked it. Um, I want to thank uh, Billy Hogan and um, Michael Bradley and Trent and everyone. For, oh, yes, and everyone for sending in the, their comments or emails. Uh, please keep them coming, um, and I will be. I read them all, and if I at this point I'll be just reading them all on the show. If I get to a point where I get a lot of them, which would be really cool. Um, any ones that aren't on the show, I will respond to. So I will read all respond all comments or anything sent to the show. I will read them. I promise you. Um, again, I put this on the uh, Facebook group page. But if anyone out there listening um, has a promo that they would like included on these shows, uh, please send them to me at umbc81 at gmail.com, and I will include them possibly in this episode, depending on when I get it. But I will include them on future episodes and um i hope you all have a great day bye thank you for listening to superman in the bronze age hosted by charlie niemeyer you can write to the show at umbc81 at gmail.com you can subscribe to the show two ways via the rss feed at superman in the bronze age or via itunes also if you like this show make sure you check out the blogs and podcasts listed in the recommended sites section and be sure to check out my reviews of other classic Superman comics at www.supermanhomepage.com. Superman and all related characters are copyright DC Comics. Also, any images or music used for this blog or podcast is purely for entertainment only. I do not make any money from this show. Thank you again for listening, and God bless.